You're listening to Badass Lady Folk, a podcast about socially engaged women and non-binary femmes kicking buns big and small. I'm your host, Christine Sloan Stoddard. That intro music came from the song Talking Hands by Toxic Moxie. As previously mentioned, this is a reboot of my Radio Free Brooklyn show, The Badass Lady Folk of Brooklyn. Now, Quail Bell Press and Productions is producing this podcast for and about incredible women and non-binary femmes from around the world, not just Brooklyn. This episode, my guest is actress Donna Morales. Welcome, Donna. Hi, how are you? How's everything you're doing today? Good? It's great. Yeah, we have beautiful <laughs> weather. Finally, I feel spring is just about to come. <laughs> All right, well, you let me know because I'm staying down here in Florida until spring has definitely sprung. Oh, yeah, the uh, spring <laughs> always, yeah. Okay, well, when you come back to the New York area, I promise you, it's going to be right. beautiful. It better be. So I'm going to read the bio that we ran for Donna on a recent interview over at Quail Bell Magazine. Dear listeners, definitely check out that article. I will be posting the link in the show notes so that you can read it. Brooklyn born and Long Island raised, Donna Morales is a vivacious and versatile New York actress who started dancing at age six. By age 17, she was dancing professionally and eventually transitioned to a career in education. First, as the owner of a dance studio, and then as a teacher of early childhood education for the New York City Department of Education, DOE, for those who know it. After 25 years of service with the NYC DOE, she retired, but she never abandoned her love for the stage. At age 42, she began performing for regional theaters across Long Island and the outer boroughs and became active in children's theater as well. More recently, she made her foray into Manhattan Productions. Passionate about the performing arts of all kinds, Donna launched her, oh, landed her first feature film role in 2018 and continues to act in TV, film, theater, and now voiceover projects. That's what we're gonna talk about today. We're gonna focus on Donna's work on Quail Bell's first ever audiobook, Naomi and the Reckoning, I wrote and directed the audiobook. Donna narrated it beautifully. And my dear friend, Denise Zenyep, created the music. The audiobook is based off of the print book published by Finishing Line Press. Listeners, as always, I will drop the links in the show notes. So, Naomi and the Reckoning is a novelette, and it follows this young woman named Naomi. She has a physical deformity. She's living in Richmond, Virginia. She struggles with body acceptance all her life. She comes from this very strict religious Catholic upbringing and uh, purity culture further complicated her relationship with her body. And now she's recently married and she can't find sexual satisfaction. The book opens with five narrative poems. You can actually hear those poems on a video we popped out on YouTube and Vimeo, etc. Uh, Donna narrated the poems just as she did with the rest of the book. And the rest of the book is this central story. It's a work of prose fiction. Total t the total running time is 41 minutes, 26 seconds. Pretty good for a first time, Donna. <laughs> Thank you very much. So what's the first thing you want to say about working on Naomi and the Reckoning? Well, when I was first introduced to the novelette, the, the, the 
the prose and uh, the hard copy. And I read through it and I said, oh my God, this is me. Uh, Naomi could be my alter ego. Everything about her is me. Wow. Except the name. Yeah. I, I don't know how you did that, but you just <laughs> described my entire childhood and most of adulthood Ooh. in this book. Oh, mm -hmm. well, we um, with the exception, I did not have the, the, the lip deformity, but I did have and still do um, have issues with um, body dysmorphia, you know, and, and I, I had issues with with weight. So, okay. oh, my goodness, this was uh, me. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, I can't wait to dive into some of that in a bit. First, I want to get into some of the, maybe the more technical aspects or, or artistic aspects that are not as personal, mm -hmm. or maybe they are, but like, what are some of the things that go through an actor's head when they're looking at words on a page and thinking about how to bring them to life? Well, you want to do justice to the story. You want to do justice to the writer. That's the first thing I do. I read it and then I go through it again and I look for the message. You know, anybody could just read a book. When you're, when you're voice acting, you've got so many different challenges because you've just got the intonation in your voice. You've got to let the reader feel through your, through your voice, just as I'm, I'm speaking now to um, an, an audio audience on this podcast you need to convey your message through through your voice and and you can't use your body you're not seeing facial expressions and that that it was a big challenge for me for the very first time out of the gate because i am a very expressive actress as you know uh, but to to have to to really discipline my body and just use the voice to make those words pop off the page mm -hmm. that was a big challenge so what sort of interpretation were you hoping to bring to Naomi and the reckoning as you prepared for our recording sessions? Well, I wanted to, to tell the story of, of a young lady who is just so confused, even from childhood. Um, she asked the right questions, but because of culture and, and, um, and, family, um, family beliefs and, and, you know, things were taboo. They couldn't be spoken of, you know, um, let's just say her, her mother was, so she looked at her mother as a role model, but her mother wasn't there really as a role model. Yeah. So I, I wanted to convey that because it, again, um, it was very personal to me as well. So I felt for her. So I wanted to interpret her as a woman who, you know, she was just trying to navigate through her, her life, through puberty, through teenhood, through young adulthood, and, and, you know, trying to figure out how in the hell did I end up here? And now what do I do? All right. <laughs> <laughs> so could you talk about your voiceover training? Uh, because you were a dancer and like- I was. You yes, body, <laughs> body, exactly. Um, well, so now I can compare the two. Where in dance you don't use speech, but you convey through body expression. 
Well, voiceover, you're using your voice. And being an early childhood teacher really helped uh, foster my, my voiceover acting because I was in front of four-year-olds all the time and I was reading to them every single day. So what was I reading to them? Your classics, you know, yeah, Three Billy Goats Gruff. I became the troll. I was the three Billy Goats. I, I was Little Red Riding Hood. I was, you know, uh, Goldilocks with the three bears. I voiced every single character for these children. Why? Because I worked with uh, children who were non-English speaking. And so I needed to reach them, especially the child that was sitting in the back of the group that just was so shy because they, they couldn't speak the language. And so they'd be the They'd be the child, you know, don't look at me. I'll look at the floor. If I look at the floor, the teacher's not going to look at me. She will call on me. And I felt that. And I knew that. And, I, and so in order to gain their audience, I had to be silly. So I learned how to do all of these silly voices and train my voice. And also, I do a lot of, I do a lot of dialects and accents. Why? Because I worked with people I worked with various cultures throughout my career. So I worked with Russian children. I worked with Asian children. I worked with Jamaican children. I picked up all types of dialects simply by listening to the kids and working with their parents. So I, I kind of learned it just by working with these cultures. Yeah. And I'm sure that when you were going over rules or or cultural norms for the classroom that mm -hmm. weren't necessarily familiar with the ch to the children, that was a chance for you to be serious too, right? Yes, it was. It was. But um, when I was working, I used to keep my door closed, and I felt my door was closed. It was my space, and it was a safe space. Yeah. You know, I wanted it to be a safe space for these kids as well, where they can take chances, and that's what early childhood should be all about taking chances and, and being in a safe space and being silly, being a kid. Yeah. So in order for them to let go and, and be a child within the norms, you know, there were rules, you know, <laughs> we had to play nice with each other. We couldn't hit each other over the head with blocks and, you know, take the crayons and break them. You know, we, we had to convey those rules too, but at least these kids knew they were in a safe space and the person who may not speak their language was someone they can, they can build a trust with. Yeah. So one of the reasons, and you already started to mention it, I'm so glad. One of the reasons why I cast you for this role was that I knew that you would have a lot of empathy for Naomi's character. Yeah. Most of my peers, uh, friends, acquaintances, just people in my broader social and professional circles are very progressive. I identify that way too. Maybe not quite as progressive as some of them, but definitely on that side of that spectrum of the spectrum and along with that line of thinking comes a lot of sex positivity um, again it's not necessarily how I was raised it's just right. that is what people talk about in my social circles now uh, but sometimes that positivity doesn't involve a lot of critical thinking and my biggest yeah. disappointment is also just how little empathy there can be for women who are trying to break free from conservative upbringing and embrace their sexuality. It's like, 
I often encountered this total lack of understanding for why a woman would struggle with that. Like the shift should be automatic. If she has brain cells, if she has courage, forget what her parents said, forget what the priest said, the teacher said, whatever. So I, and I, I don't like that lack of empathy. It's not fair. It's hard to make change. No, it's not. It is hard to me. Now there is, there's definitely a little bit of a generation gap between you and me. Um, I am a baby boomer, uh, a young baby boomer, but a baby boomer nonetheless. And I grew up in a strict Sicilian household um, where you didn't have sex till you got married. You had to have chaperones when you dated. I didn't have to have a chaperone per se, but you know, um, my mother was always looking out the window. Um, my father was always there with the, you know, giving the third degree on basically every guy I, I brought home. And, you know, it, it, it was difficult. Um, I, I can remember being uh, engaged during my first marriage um, to my then husband. And I said to my parents, I want to go away for the weekend. I'm going away for the weekend with my fiance. And they're like, no, you're not. Well, why not? And I was, I was young. I, I was 19. And I like, I have a ring on my finger. I mean, I, I, I don't understand anything that I'm, I could do there or going away for the weekend. I could do here or maybe have been doing all along. You know, <laughs> You know, I just couldn't understand that mentality. And, and it, because of that, it allowed, it, well, it didn't allow, it led to a lot of missteps, a lot of um, missteps with regard to who I was as a woman and what my role was. And even after I got married, you know, your role, you get married, you have a family, you know, the, the reasons for getting married back then were so different than getting married now. You know, it wasn't really about partnership. It was about blending of families to make more of a family. It, how you were treated before you were married was so different how you were treated after you were married, including sex, okay? Yeah. Women did not initiate, or at least not the ones I knew. It was always the husband who initiated. Yeah. And again, once you had children, you were looked at differently. You weren't looked at as, as a sexual object anymore in certain cases. I'm not gonna say everybody, but I'm saying in certain cases, you were not looked at sexually in that way because now you're a mother. Right. But you're a mother, but you're still a woman and you still have urges and you still have needs. Right. So that's where the missteps come in and the miscommunications come in. Because now, back then, not so much now, I don't know, that's where the roles kind of change a little bit because now you're a wife and you're a mother and your husband may or may not look at you the same way they did before you were married yeah. sexually. And that leads to other things such as affairs and, and so you've got the wife and the mother that's, you know, you're keeping house and raising my, raising my children. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. And then there's the other life outside the home on yeah. the husband's part that 
unfortunately, too many women suffer from um, having been victims of, you know, their their spouses being, you know, ha having infidelity, and it's it's terrible. You know, and that was another thing that happened to me. So I'm speaking on that one. And um, women are sexual beings. We all are. I just learned it too late. I didn't discover. And again, that's what led to other other problems, you know, body image. I was always thin because I danced. And then when I had kids, I gained weight. And then I, and then once you get married, you're gaining weight when there's kids and family and you're always cooking and you're always eating. And and you're not as active in the way you used to be. And sometimes it just leads you to give up. So because I had those body image problems later on, after I had my kids, um, it didn't, I, I didn't feel as sexual. Even though I was, I didn't feel pr pretty anymore. Yeah. Attractive anymore, but I was. And I just wanted my husband to look at me in the same way he did before we were married, before children, when we were dating, when he was excited. <laughs> and it didn't happen. And all of my relationships going forward from there, from my divorce, um, really the marriage kind of, not only the marriage, but my upbringing imprinted, my marriage imprinted, mm -hmm. that it, it made me you're like, oh, no, 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 I don't do this. No, no. You know, it, it made me very hesitant to want to enter into relationships or sexual relationships with men as a result of that. You know, right. Because I felt either I wasn't good enough or, um, you know, I, I just was afraid of it, you know. And then talking about pleasure a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Nobody talked about that. <laughs> I never knew. I never knew. And I'm sharing this with, everybody's going to hear it. I didn't know what an orgasm felt like. Yeah. Until after my second marriage. Oh. Well, I'm going to tell you why. Because, you know, I didn't really understand. You know, everybody talked about this thing. But I'm like, I don't know. Okay. Maybe. No, and, and then all the, there's a classic, the guy was like, Did, was it good for you? Did you, and I'm like, uh, 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 yeah, <laughs> because I, what am I supposed to say? No, I didn't know what I was, you know, yeah, it, it wasn't like the movies, right. you know, portrayed it, not in my case anyway, but I, I guess, I guess I was a good actor there too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you really have been acting your whole life. Yes. Well, well, you know, not not lately, thank God. You know, I kind of caught up a little bit. But um, yeah. So Naomi was the same way. Only she rebelled after her marriage. She took the bull by the horn, so to speak, yeah. and said. This is what I want. Yeah. I didn't know what I wanted because I didn't know what it was to want. Right. Well, I was going to say, I think there is this huge uh, generational misconception that a lot of millennials think or assume that baby boomers were all hippies and they were having sex all the time with a bunch of different people and it was just pleasure everywhere. 
and that now our generation is so sexually repressed because we're on the internet all the time. And even before the pandemic, we weren't sleeping around as much as a previous generation because, well, we were just on the internet. <laughs> but it's not, it's not true. I mean, there are just so, the hippies were just one group of a generation. And that attitude really didn't affect everyone in a whole generation. <laughs> no, it's definitely not me. And like I said, I was a late baby boomer. Yeah. You know, so I didn't grow up a hippie. I basically was a child of the 70s. Yeah. You know, I, I was born in 61, but really a child of the, the late 60s and 70s. When, but, but, you know, I remember looking at my brother and he's 11 years older than I. And, you know, I, I kind of observed what he did and, and yeah, the, the, the hippie image and, and the, you know, footloose and fancy free, you know, sexual, you know, uh, creativity, I like to call it. Um, smoking pot yeah, and just being totally free. He, huh? he was a boy. It was all, it was always going ah. to be different, right? Especially mm. in a Sicilian Catholic household. Uh -huh. It yes. was always going to be different for him. Yes. And it was. Things that he was never questioned for, ever, by my father or my mother. I, it was total opposite. It was a total opposite in my life. Uh, and I found myself resenting my parents for that. I'm like, what? But they never explained to me. It's because the sexual differences. I didn't know. I just thought, okay, he's older, but now I'm his age. He's 11 years older. And now I'm his age and I want to experience the same things he did when he was this age. And you're saying, no, why? <sighs> I was rebellious too. But, you know, after a while, I just kind of gave up yeah i did yeah. you know so rebellious that that was the reason why i i basically did get married at a young age when i ended up learning that i jumped from the frying pan into the fire mm -hmm. because nobody really ever sat me down and said okay yes marriage is this this and this i mean i'm expecting my mother to sit down and have a talk with me about sex i already knew about it i just didn't know about it to the extent where um you know I could ask for what I want and I can assert myself as a woman and I could be sexual right. and, you know, and, and had I known all of that, maybe things would have turned out a little bit differently. Yeah. I mean, with Naomi, her mother just explains sex as something that you do to make babies, mm -hmm. and something that you do within marriage. And I yep. think even today and even with many millennials that, whether they came from a, a religious background or not, many girls learn that's the purpose of sex, to make babies, uh, or, or that is all that they learn about sex, like just the mechanics of this is how one gets pregnant, right. uh, this is how one does not get pregnant. <laughs> it's all very clinical. Yeah, yeah. It's all very, sex is, is, well, let me tell you, I have two girls, and I think God blessed me with two girls as a result of that. I was never, and I am never like that with my daughters. I am, you know, something, I'm glad I wasn't. I told them everything they needed to know. And I didn't let, let them feel ashamed. I knew that I wanted to be that mom where they can come to me, and they did. And they shared a lot with me, uh, sometimes too much. <laughs> sometimes... 
I wasn't, but, but you know something? It made me feel empowered as a mom that I did the right thing by my girls by saying, if you're ever in this situation and you feel uncomfortable, you let me know. You know, if you have questions, let me know. You know, they had their first periods. I was there, but I let them know what, why they were, okay, I explained to them the clinical part. And then I explained to them the other part of it that, hey, this is something that only a woman can do and you should be so proud of it. Right. You know, I mean, one of these days you're gonna make me a grandmother. You know, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, you're gonna make me a grandmother, but you don't have to if you don't want to, you know, because your body is just so precious that it does these things and, and it can feel these things. And don't ever be ashamed of it the way I was, you know, um, and, and they're not, and, and it's great. They grew up very, very, you know, with, with a great sense of mental health and a great feeling about their sexuality. They're beautiful girls. Um, they don't hold back. They do share with me. They're very confident where I wasn't. Mm -hmm. My daughters are extremely confident women and I'm so proud of them. And, and, I, and I, I have to say that I'm proud of myself too for, for doing that for them because that's something I never got. Yeah, and it must be very hard to raise your children differently than you were raised. I'm not a mother. Yeah. Something that I think about, how do we break from some of these patterns? There are some things we might want to preserve, but other things we're like, nope, got to do that differently. <laughs> well, you know something, I, I did raise them basically with, with the certain cultural norms and, you know, religious norms that I grew up with. You know, I raised them Catholic, but do they follow Catholicism now? Loosely, or if not at all, but that's okay. They're adults. They can make up their own minds, but I gave that to them. Um, I sent them to Catholic school, um, uh, you know, so they would have their sacraments in and, you know, they're bad. again, I gave them that. And, and if it, and for the simple fact that I feel that every child needs religion or some form of religion, but later on down the road, that can change because it's up to them, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, they, they can form their own ideas, but I gave that to them. Um, I, I gave them a sense of independence because I was a single mom for a while. I gave them a sense of independence because I, I had to, at certain points, be, let them be latchkey kids because I was going out, you know, earning my master's degree and I was working. So they came home to the neighbor letting them in. And, you know, so they had that independence and I taught them, you know, you have to get your homework done. This is, this is what you need to do, all right? You need to get the homework done. You, you need to make sure that, you know, the table is set so when I come home, I can get dinner on the table. You know, there were rules, but I allowed them that independence that I was not allowed. And I let them make their own choices, whether they were good or bad. And when they weren't so good, uh, you know, we, we sat down and had a, a conversation, but at least I let them make mistakes. Yeah. And I, I, you know, and, and I didn't, I didn't um, persecute them for their mistakes and make them feel less of a person because of those mistakes um, where I, I was chastised, I was punished. Um, we all make mistakes. We all make mistakes, you know, and, and growing up the mother of two young girls is not easy. 
<laughs> no, second. If we had a longer podcast, I'd tell you stories. <laughs> okay, so I, I loved all those points you were saying about raising your daughters with confidence and the ability to choose to to be independent and giving them a foundation in religion, but letting them again make choices later on as Absolutely. adults. And when I was writing Naomi's character, I was thinking about people I knew who came from very strict religious backgrounds and how difficult it was for them to, to finish high school. Because for many of them, that was the point where they could choose, well, not, the, the the potential to make a choice was there. <laughs> exactly. uh, are they going to continue observing this religion in such a strict, literal way? Or are right. they going to interpret things on their own? Are they going to maybe just completely break away from it? And, you know, all of that, like we've been saying all of that has consequences for women and their relationship with their bodies in ways that just don't exist for men it, right. really in any religion <laughs> right exactly you know not only does it affect them in ways that they view their own bodies but it also affects how they relate to men and how men relate how they allow men to relate to them mm -hmm. it's very important um, right. Yeah, because it's not just about sex. I mean, no. consent and being assertive, speaking up for yourself, those yes. things impact every part of life, not just sex. And if, exactly. if you can't speak up to your husband about something in the kitchen or about money or about how you're going to raise the kids, how are you supposed to do it in the bedroom? Well, <laughs> that's, what more I, taboo. Well, that's what I encountered. <laughs> As, as a young wife and mother, I was always told what the norm was and what I had to do and what I should do. I was never told, what do you want to do? I knew what I wanted to do, but what I, you know, and that's where I became, I did, I was rebellious. Um, but believe it or not, uh, my father said something to me, finally, after I had my, my second daughter, and my marriage was kind of going south at the time. And uh, I, I was barely keeping my head above water and, and trying my best to raise these kids and figure out what's my next step going to be. And my father actually sat me down and said, I didn't want to say this before, but I'm going to say it to you now. He said, because I would have said it to you before, it probably would have affected our relationship. He says, I never wanted you to depend on a man so much that you lost all sight of yourself. And I never thought I'd ever hear those words coming from my father's mouth, ever. Right. He had become more progressive, <laughs> and I, right? And I didn't even know this, but he had said to me, never depend on a man. You depend on nobody else but yourself. But, it says, but he said to me, you, you kind of got lost here. He goes, go back and find yourself. And that's when I did. That's when I, I got myself back into college. You know, I had to give up my, I had to give up my studio, but I got myself back into school and I found a new career that gave me back a sense of who I was. And, you know, I, I could do this. I'm not just the wife and a mother. And now I'm going to be a divorcee. I am a teacher. I am a mom. I am many things in life. 
um, being divorced did not define me. And that's what I thought happened. I thought that, oh, now, now I've got this, you know, stamp on me. I'm, a, I'm divorced with two kids. Who's going to want me? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. That went, yep. But getting myself out into the world, going back to school, earning my master's degree in education, raising those kids, keeping the house above the, you know, the roof above our head, finally landing a job with the DOE, it all fell into place. And I found who I was. And I wasn't just a wife and a mother or a divorced woman. I was somebody who made a difference in the world and into 36 little faces every single day. 36? Well, it was two sessions, 18 and 18, morning okay. session, afternoon session. <laughs> I was about to say, no, I know the public schools can get crowded, but 30. No, okay. no, pre-K. I taught pre-K. So there were 18 in the morning and 18 in the afternoon. Got it. <laughs> but I made a difference. I finally made a difference. And because I was able to explore that and find that career and, and make something of it that was very successful, I was, I was able to not only help myself, but help, you know, my students, help my kids, you know, it, it was I mean, before like you, a light bulb went off. Yeah. I mean, before that, you were making a, a difference with your girls, you were shaping your daughters. It's just, it seems like you were not allowed to be aware of that and allowed no. to be aware of your own strength and your ability to be independent and maybe one day have a career if you wanted it <laughs> which clearly you did <laughs> yeah yeah and and that basically was one of the reasons why the marriage had failed was because i was finding success i wanted to be independent i yes i wanted to be a wife and i wanted to be a mom but i didn't want to lose sense of who donna was and in fact that's exactly what happened yeah you know, and, and because of that, I lost everything else. But I had to find myself back. And it wasn't until, you know, my dad sat me down, you know, after my divorce and said, get yourself back in school. I'll help you go, go find yourself and, and do something. He goes, you, you've got two kids to raise. So I, so I did it. Yeah, I did it. It was all on my own. And wow. I was a single mom for five years before I remarried. And let me tell you, it felt so good to, to have that time to myself and yeah. just find out who Donna really was and who I was maybe meant to be. It was great. It really was great. And all of those experiences have led me to where I am today. Yeah, I mean, just having lived these different lives, you bring yeah. a lot of empathy and firsthand knowledge and experience yeah. to different kinds of characters. Yeah, yeah. Um, Naomi was near and dear to me, you know, and, and I'm so proud of Naomi. I am. because I, I'm proud of her because, I, again, she took the bull by the horns and, and she said, this is what I want. I mean, even in the book, she says, looking at herself in the mirror and like, am I doomed? to have painful, horrible, awkward sex for the rest of my life. Yeah. She knew better. She knew better. She, she knew that that's not what she wanted. She experienced it and she was able to go, oh, okay, okay. All right, I, I'm your wife now, I'm, we're married, but don't think that this is just gonna be, you know, you know, vanilla. <laughs> 
I'm not going to eat vanilla for the rest of this marriage or it's not going to be here. <laughs> well, I credit the character for, as you said, taking the bull by the horns. Yeah. Because I think it's one thing to identify a problem and that right. enough can be really hard, right? Mm -hmm. But to actually try and take action to read, to try and have conversation, whatever. It doesn't even have to be about sex and marriage, anything, <laughs> making any kind of change and actually doing it, like you actually going to school, getting that yeah. master's, all yeah. that, that can be so hard. It was, <laughs> and in hindsight, I said to myself several times, I said, this is my kids, you know, maybe I should have done this and not married your father. But then again, I said, if I didn't marry your father, you wouldn't be here. So there was a reason for that as well. Yeah. Naomi was lucky because she went on that, that trip and that's where she met her husband. Mm -hmm. I couldn't even go away on a ski trip when I was engaged. Here she was, you know, in a foreign country. So good for her. <laughs> <laughs> good for her. Uh, seriously, that was progressive. That's great. I mean, yeah, she had that. She was able to experience her independence. So I think that's, being able to experience that independence allowed her to be able to express herself as, as an independent person, not just as a woman, but as an independent person expressing her needs. You know, yeah. yes, I am your wife, but I need this from you and you need yeah. to listen, you know, rather than it's going to be okay, dear, you know, I'll be okay. I'll, 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 are you all right? You know, I'll take care of you. She didn't want it. She didn't want that. And I, she yeah. did not want that at all. She just wanted to be heard because her mother had shut her down all those years. And even her own sister fooled around behind her back. Ah, it's so painful in a, in a particular way when other women betray you, you know? Yeah, and it's her sister. sister. Your female friend. Like, really, girl? <laughs> exactly. And I think that's how she felt. She felt so betrayed. And I, again, I have a brother 11 years older than I, and I always felt betrayed. Because why is it it was okay for him and not for me? Nobody ever sat me down and explained the difference. Yeah. And therefore, I did not see a difference. I couldn't understand. Nobody ever said to me, well, you know... You're, you're a girl, you're gonna go to me, he's a guy, and this is what guys did. That didn't exist. It's amazing how even as young children, though, kids often notice, they, they can't explain why, but they know, mm -hmm. well, the boys are being treated this way and they get to do this, and the girls yeah. are treated this way and they get to do that. Yep. And some of them ask how come. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, well, how come, he gets to be a superhero uh, or how come he gets to play with the fire truck or how come he gets to be on the football team. <laughs> and in my classroom, um, every, everything was open to everyone. I had boys in the doll corner. I had girls with construction hats on building the skyscrapers in the block corner. There were no, no defined sexual roles in my classroom. It was all, all bets were off. You do what you explore, what you want to explore. Yeah, that, so that's something that I hear a lot from young parents is, well, how am I supposed to teach a tiny child about 
consent, about um, accepting their body, about relating to other sexes? Like what, what are some of the ways that you try to teach those lessons in an age appropriate manner uh, with your students or your own daughters? Well, with my students, it was just, it was a lot of modeling, a lot of modeling, modeling mutual respect. Um, I, I dealt with a lot of children who came, who came from shelters and who saw a lot of disrespect within their, their environment um, where women were being, their moms were being abused. Um, and they, they just, their tiny eyes were just um, exposed so much dysfunction at such an early age and they would bring that into the classroom with them and I saw it and when I saw you know um, aggression especially male aggression on women I'd had boys come in turning chairs and tables taking blocks and, and hauling them and I'm like no and these were four-year-olds these were four-year-olds but turning this is what, tables <laughs> this is what they were exposed to right so I had a safe space and I had to let them know this is not a thing that happens all over the place. What you're experiencing is not everywhere and you can't carry that from your home here. Here is a safe space. Here is a fun, we're in a happy place. We smile, this is a happy place. <laughs> There's no crying, this is a happy place. We've got puppets and, and you know, dolls and songs and we're dancing and singing. We have snack time and nap time. It's a happy place. It's amazing what baggage these little three and a half, four-year-olds come in with. That, and, and they're just, they don't know any better because that's what they're exposed to. And so my rules were that first and foremost, we respect each other. And I always used to do something with them. I know you can't, nobody can see what I'm doing right now, but I used to have them do this. We keep our hands to ourselves. Okay, so you reach your mind, pushing my hands out, wiggling my fingers, keep our hands to ourselves. Cross them. Yes, our hands to ourselves. And, you know, we use our hands for, for helping, not hurting. Hands are for helping, not for hurting. We can help our neighbor clean up. We can help our neighbor carry a tray. We can help our neighbor tie a shoe but we cannot hurt our neighbor. And that is what I conveyed in my classroom to my students. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, that's perfect. Just the yeah. simple idea of you don't touch somebody who doesn't want to be touched, you know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, that goes into these sexual relationships too. Like don't right. touch people. And exactly. if, if you are given consent, then like touch in a pleasurable way. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, and with little children, little children are very innocent. They don't see the differences right. in sex. Because, you know, they, they would go into the, you know, and students would go into the bathroom, you know, together. And I have to say to them, well, we have to give each other privacy. So girls need their privacy and boys need their privacy, you know, and, and I wouldn't go beyond that. I would just say privacy is important. It's special to the girls and it's special to the boys. So we don't share the bathroom. That's, that's one thing we don't share. We share everything else in here, but we cannot share a bathroom. <laughs> you know, I, I had to put the, I had to lay those rules down too. So 
if you do it in a positive way and you you communicate in a in a loving positive you know supportive and non-threatening way mm -hmm. you'd be surprised what you can reap it's wonderful to see but you know i had to learn that as an adult yeah. being with these children because growing up you know it was always you have gotta do this and you have to no <laughs> no word i learned the word no very well <laughs> um so yeah so naomi good for her yeah i empathize with this chick she's good she's she's gonna be good and and now you're gonna write naomi too <laughs> Yeah, come on. Her journey, Naomi's journey is not finished. You left it. I'm not even going to, I don't want to spoil it, but her journey's not done. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Her journey's not done. Well, okay. So when I, <laughs> I just gave you an idea, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> well, what I was going to say is that when I think of how to really boil down the story, I often, uh, creative writing instructors or books will ask, what does the character want? Just a mm -hmm. simple, and you have to be able to answer it with one phrase. And I would say that what she wants is pleasure. Yes. Uh, so do you agree, disagree? Would you sum it up maybe a different way, use a different word or phrase to complete that sentence? No, she wants what every human being who has warm blood running through their veins wants. Everyone wants pleasure. With pleasure, it doesn't necessarily have to be sexual pleasure, yeah. but everyone wants pleasure of some kind. You know, some it's people derive pleasure from many different things. For her, she wanted sexual pleasure because she knew it was there. And she wasn't ready or willing to settle for less. Yeah. And that's, yeah. Yeah, no. I'd say pleasure. She. Well, I think a lot of women have this hang up that we have to earn pleasure. Like we have to deserve it. Like maybe we have to, mm -hmm. we're not pretty enough, or maybe we're too fat, or we have a disability, or we're too old, or. Well, yeah, okay. Pregnant. Uh huh. Right? So that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I admire her for wanting that and trying to go after it. I think what holds so many of us back is just these different societal hangups. Yeah. We've been raised with, right? Yeah, yeah. Or social oh. pressures from elsewhere. <laughs> exactly. Oh, you can't wear a bikini, you're too fat. Yeah. Who said so? Look at these plus size women in, in lingerie. They're gorgeous. Yeah. But at one point when I was plus size, I would, I would pile on the clothes and, and wear all the big things to hide myself. And people looked at me differently. Yeah. People looked at me differently when I was a hundred pounds heavier than I am now. When I came back after I lost the weight, people were like, wow, look at you. <sighs> And they wouldn't say to me, and this is what I always said. I always said, I always noticed that people wouldn't say to me, Donna, you look beautiful. Look how beautiful you look. They'd be like, wow, you lost a lot of weight. Ugh. Mm-hmm. I kid you not. And they still say that. 
Um, I, I don't know if it's just because they don't have anything else to say. Maybe it's just ignorance. Yes, I did lose a lot of weight, but I don't, I don't know. I don't, I know I lost a lot of weight. Okay. It's obvious you could see it, but I don't take you lost a lot of weight as a compliment. I take, right. wow, wow. I, you, you've blossomed into, you, look, what a butterfly. You look gorgeous. You, not that you didn't look gorgeous before, but I, I love that you had the courage to do what you did and good for you. And, and, it, and you're beautiful. You always were beautiful, but look at this. And you're, you're a role model for other women who are overweight or obese and, and they can look and see it can be done. That's what I'd rather have somebody tell me rather than, wow, you lost a lot of weight. And even the way men looked at me as well. <sighs> when I was heavier, they did not take me seriously. They belittled me. Mm. Um, I, and I, it made me feel unattractive. And I knew I wasn't the most attractive. I mean, I always had a pretty face, yes. It was heavier, yes. But I didn't, I didn't feel like I belonged. Yeah. Even yeah. as an actress, even as an actress, I was not offered when I, when I was doing theater, regional theater. I took myself off the stage for two years. Wow. Two years to get myself the way I am now to work on, because I, I couldn't, well, physically it was, it was hard for me because I was heavier and I was having knee issues and, and all kinds of physical problems. But because I, I felt so, even though I was large, I felt so small. Right, because of how people made you feel. <laughs> yep. I became so not confident and I've always been confident but I became the least confident person. I would, I, I was never shy. I became shy. I would walk in to rehearsals. I'd go in the back, I'd sit down, I was quiet. I would just do what I had to do. I wouldn't interact because I just didn't feel good about myself. I, I was very self-conscious that people weren't looking at me for the quality I bring to a piece that I was working on, but rather, oh my gosh, look at her. Well, she's so big, you know, she can yeah. look at how she, you know, look, look so what she looks sorry. like from behind, huh? I'm, I'm so sorry, sorry people made you feel that way. That's oh, yeah, they, horrible. Mm -hmm. yep. um, I think we're all aware that it happens. Mm -hmm. I think too many people are not aware that they need to stop treating people of different sizes differently. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and what you were saying about, uh, how people would just exclaim, oh, you lost a lot of weight. I wish yeah. that in those sort of situations, people would instead focus on all the other things you've done with that time. Because in that case, you did, and I understand what you were saying about the other kinds of compliments about being beautiful and being a role model, but also you spent two years working on that, you know? Yeah. It's nobody, not nobody saw the way I had to do dietary changes. Nobody saw how, how hard it was medically for me, physically, and that, uh, what I had to go through to lose that weight. Um, you know, all the doctor's appointments I had to go through, all the, all the inner struggles I had, every time I, all the, the anxiety I had, every time I went near a scale. I mean, that's real. That's real. Yeah. And it's still real right now to this day because it sticks with you it doesn't leave you even as a smaller person now i have such anxiety 
over the way I look. Mm -hmm. um, even like this, you know, everything has to be just, just so, and that's horrible. You know, it, it really is. And, but I am confident and, and act. And that's one of the reasons why I love acting because it yeah. takes me out. It takes me out of that. Acting takes me out of that. It does. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm just me, you know, what you see is what you get. That's what I tell people. I, um, I'm loud. I'm silly. Um, I could be badass. Um, but it could be, I'm, I'm, I'm sweet as sugar. You know, I, I, I love kids. I love animals, you know, people not so good with, but <laughs> yeah, but the point is you're, you're human, right? You're a person I'm human. So yeah. much more than some yeah. number on a scale or yeah. whatever size your body is. Yeah. Like you, you're more a, than that. You're an actress. You're, you're, you were a teacher for years. Yeah. You're a business yeah. owner. You yes. have had so many adventures. You've traveled. You have done things with your life. Exactly. <laughs> but isn't it funny how people will not look at that? They will just look at the shell. Right. Person and judge you by what you look like, not what you just said, the fact that I was a successful business owner, a successful teacher, I've traveled the world and I've raised two beautiful children, you know, single-handedly. Um, it, it, nobody looks at that, you know? I was able to um, take care of two elderly parents as well when they got older and um, unfortunately, you know, passed away from both the same illness, and, but I was there for them. And nobody sees that. And that's very sad is how we, we are so superficial as humans. Yeah. It's, it's, it's terrible. Uh, and I think that speaks to the, the book a lot also is that, um, you know, she was very self-conscious about herself because of her lip. Yeah. You know, she, she'd go to, to hide it because it was there. And was she going to be judged on that? Obviously she wasn't because, you know, someone fell in love with her, which was wonderful, and she did get married. Um, but for a very good portion of her life, you know, that that lip just bothered her. Yeah, and other there were lots of boys who didn't ask her out. Like exactly there was that line about uh how she didn't get asked out to the prom, for instance. Right. right. Uh, yeah, because there <sighs> Uh, Which leads me to ask, yeah, did she marry this man because she felt that she'd have no other, other, uh, yeah, so that, I mean, other, that, other, you know, opportunities. Did she feel that about herself that, well, this guy wants to marry me, so I'm going to marry him because he asked me because who knows nobody else, right? Did when she I, in her head? Yeah, I mean, when I was writing it, it was definitely something that went through my head that she did feel she did feel a certain desperation, a certain amount of pressure, because it, mm -hmm. it also goes back to what we were talking about before, like not being able to ask for what you want in the bedroom because you feel like you yeah. don't deserve it, like you're worthless. Well, for a lot of women, just having somebody accept them like that. Right that's enough or at right. least they they think they have been raised to believe that should be enough right. oh someone loves me somebody asked me to marry him okay this should be the end instead of me. questioning what comes after that 
<laughs> right, because the fairy tale has only just begun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the fairy tale ends once you take the white dress off, and it's just right. so funny. Because um, going back to now, let's if we can, can we go back to the to the poems? Can we speak about the poems a little yeah, bit? Yeah, sure. Yeah, let's talk about the poems. So the book, my dear listeners, opens with five poems. And they each relate to the story in some way, but they're not necessarily about Naomi in a literal way. She's not necessarily necessarily the character or narrator in each of those poems. They're just, they're poems about being a girl, being raised in purity culture, uh, dealing with sexual abuse, uh, dealing with ideas about uh, what a slut is, what women are not allowed to do, stuff like that. Yeah, what yeah. do you want to say? <laughs> well, um, I, I think we had this conversation the other day when I was speaking to you about how, um, what was your reasoning for choosing the cover of the book with the wedding dresses? Um, and and it, the wedding dress flies in the face of what is being said in these poems because you know once that white wedding dress comes off, all bets are off, and and in the fact that the poems describe um, women in such a uh, oh god what's the word I want to use oh, let's. I've been told they're in, a, in an oppressive way. Uh, Women are, the, the poems describe the mere sheer act of having a vagina as, as, an, uh, as being oppressed um, from the moment you, you take your first breath on this earth. Yeah. You know, all right, we're all in pink, you know, we're defined. Pink, we're a girl. Blue, you're a boy. And those roles, from the moment you come out of the womb, are there you go you know it's there's no it's not like right twix and left twix you, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? it's not the same it's it's not the same simply by nurture of your sex yeah Widow. and then the line in the poem yeah yes and then yes and then the wedding dress you know we <laughs> It, it just kind of flies in the face of impurity. You know, we, we wear white on our wedding day to, 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 to show that, that, you know, to have an air of purity because that's what marriage is supposed to be about. It's, all, it's like baptism. When a baby is baptized, they're, they're pure and innocent. Well, yes, they are because they haven't experienced anything other than taking their first breaths and maybe having their diaper changed. But by the time you are a woman ready to marry and every woman looks forward to putting on that white dress and I have to ask myself and they're beautiful but and, and I love them too I love putting my daughter in one but I'm like why haven't norms changed for that I mean I guess it's personal choice also a woman can choose to get married in white or not but why has white well now they come in different colors there are wedding dresses remember. that come in yes such a big deal when yes. Jessica Parker wore a black wedding dress that was like all over the magazines. Right. People were just so shocked that she right. had full choice. Yes, yes, but because why, why? And it's funny because it's what's it, the connotations of purity, <clears throat> but how, excuse me, how pure are we really? 
going into that covenant, going into that pact, how pure are we? Yeah, I mean, there's this gross association with childhood because the wedding dress is so similar to a little girl's dress in many ways or right. the, the baptismal dress, the christening gown. Yeah. There's also a little white dress. <laughs> also communion. Communion, exactly. All these little white dresses that children... If you are Catholic, the, the sacrament of communion, right. all sacrament, this is all in, okay, based on religion. Yeah, and, and right. So even people who were not raised in the Christian faith, if they come from a Western culture, they're probably <laughs> going to wear a white dress. Even, I mean, Jewish girls wear white dresses. Exactly. Some of them will wear blue. I have seen that. But right. still, the norm in Western mainstream society is, white. is a white wedding dress. <laughs> you could have been the madam of uh, a of an escort service, a brothel. You could have been one of the girls in the brothel and yes, still, it doesn't matter. You could have just been turning tricks the night before, but you're going to get married in a white dress. Yeah, no, it is weird. <laughs> but, all, but like you said, we, they're beautiful. We've been conditioned to love these dresses and exactly. fantasize about them since yeah. we're little. And yes. Fashion magazines. We they, fantasize about them. That's what it is. It's a fantasy. It's the fantasy. We, we want to live that fantasy. You just said it. Yeah. Uh, you just right. said it. Yeah. No. And it grosses me out. <laughs> okay. We, we are, it's the fantasy that we're in love with because we know that marriage is not a fantasy. It's a real thing. Well, we should know, right? <laughs> yes, but we're not. Unless you have parents or role models who are going to set it to you straight, who are going to keep it real for you. Yeah. And let you know that it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be freaking Cinderella. I'm sorry. You know, <laughs> you know, no guy's going to put a glass slipper on your foot and, and you know, take care of you. Go we take care of ourselves as women. We need to take care of ourselves as women. Even married women need to take care of themselves physically, emotionally, mentally. You need to take care of yourself because at a moment's notice, nothing is promised. That spouse could be out the door or unfortunately dead and buried in a heartbeat. And then you are left with no one but yourself. And there are so many, I've seen it so many times. I've seen so many young women, older women, who lose their husbands by either divorce. I'm, I don't know what's worse, being a widow or being divorced. Um, but at least if you're divorced, you could still ask questions and you could still bargain and argue. But there are so many women my age who've lost their husbands, who depended on their husbands their whole life for everything and trusted them with everything. And then they're gone. And that's when they find out, I didn't know I had a second mortgage on the house. Oh. I, didn't, I didn't know that um, he took these loans or he made these bad business deals. And now I owe all these partners. I didn't know that my credit cards were run up. They were, they were maxed out. I didn't even know I had these credit cards. Terrible. I didn't know we had a mistress. I mean, it's happened. Right. Yeah, finding out happened. about that little apartment in the city. What's that about? <laughs> that, that's what I'm saying is that 
instead of, and again, it, it goes back to, you know, religious beliefs and how you're raised. You know, I, I remember, I don't know, when I got married, I got married in the Catholic Church. We had to go to what was pre-Cana, if, if you're familiar with that. It was counseling by a priest. Now, it's what we did. But I'm sorry, what does a priest know about marriage? They're not allowed to get married. <laughs> Seriously, they're, not, they're married to the church. So what do they know about being in a, a relationship, a partnership? For, for, I mean, let's, even business deals go sour and they dissolve their partnerships, right? Yeah. yeah. Marriage is, yes, it's based on love, but it's also business. <laughs> and nobody ever tells people the business end of it. Uh, um, we explain it as being this wonderful rite of, rite of passage in your life that now, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. You know, most people now, and, and I applaud this, don't get married for those very yeah. reasons that they don't feel the need to. And, and I'm, I kind of, I kind of get it now, but it took me this long to get it. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or they just get married later. Well, yes what would have traditionally been acceptable i mean it used exactly. to be you were a spinster by the time you were 30 right well, yeah i mean Someone even married you <laughs> yeah. well here's the thing when i was in high school and i graduated high school in 79 when i graduated high school there were girls already with engagement rings on their fingers at 18 <sighs> yeah because that was what we that was what the norm was during that time period you yeah. got married or you went to secretarial school or yeah, right, you went to college, but very rarely did you go to a four-year college. Maybe you did. It depends on what family, again, it was different, you know, you know, family values, I guess. Um, but it wasn't the norm. Whereas now, you know, somebody, I had two kids by 25. It's one, there's a, there are 25 year olds still living in, in their parents' house who don't even have a job. Oh yeah, for sure. When I was <laughs> in grad school, most yeah. of the kids, most of the undergraduates in the class I TA'd for were actually 24, 25. See? Any of them were going, I was at City College of New York, so CUNY system, a lot of people go to school part-time, they live with yeah. their parents because yeah. the city is very expensive. And yeah, but they're 25, they might still be working a retail job, you exactly. know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Getting back to the, the sexuality part um, and the roles of women and girls, and, and I think um, it affects, again, lack of communication or lack of support or having a proper role model can lead girls down the wrong path. And I think that's where we also see a lot of teen pregnancies going on. Um, where these young girls are getting pregnant and, and they think that, well, you know, nobody else loved me enough. My baby's gonna love me. You know, I have somebody who's gonna love me now. Or he loved me and I'm gonna have his baby. It's, it's sad. No, I mean, there are all sorts of outcomes for just not giving girls enough information thank you uh, exactly and they're young and some yeah some girls will be pressured at a young age to to do things that maybe emotionally they're not ready to do yet and right. get pregnant or maybe they are emotionally ready but no one ever taught them about birth control 
or gave them access to it. <laughs> and then it's too late because they don't have the education. They're afraid to ask for, for fear of being admonished, punished, you know, um, yeah, either way, whether whether you have a kid in high school or you're a virgin till marriage, you get a raw deal just for being a girl. <laughs> yeah, you really you really do. You really do. I you mean, really do. Yeah, of course there are, there are happy, well-adjusted women out there, but it just is not the same for us as for boys. It just is not. Because I mean, even, even if you have parents who are incredibly understanding and progressive and they're up on all the latest literature and make things as accessible to you as possible, you're still gonna to have to deal with teachers and down the road, employers, yeah. um, people in the community, just anyone, just anyone, yeah. all kinds of people who are going to view you a certain way because you are a girl, you're a, a young woman. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. And you have to fight so much more. Although I have to say that as of late, you know, there are very strong women role models. I mean, look, we have a woman vice president now. When did we ever think that would ever happen? You know, I, I think the tide is turning, right. um, which is wonderful. You know, we, we have women in many different roles. Um, and, and we have, you know, in the Supreme Court and, you know, in, in government, it's, it's great. And, and teachers and, and in the medical field where those occupations and those career choices were only offered to men. At one point in, in my generation, women, there weren't as many women accepted to medical school as there is now. There weren't many, as many women accepted to law school as there is now. They had to fight and scratch to get a spot at a, at a covenant, a really prominent university, that covenant spot. Yeah. It, most of the time it was given to a male. And then if they, it was offered to a female, it was because, okay, you're gonna be our token. We, we, just to make them, the men, the boys feel better, we're gonna, we're gonna admit that token woman just to say, well, look, we've got a woman student, uh, you know? Am I wrong? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Dear listeners, that is all the time we have. I am going to drop links to some of the other projects that uh, Donna is working on now. So you can follow her, find out about her on her website, check her out on Facebook, maybe drop in on a Zoom reading. All sorts of things are going on. This is a busy lady and we just focused on one of her many projects happening now and happening in the near future. So thank you, Donna. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you thank all out you. there. Thank you listeners for choosing the Badass Lady Folk podcast. I know you all have so many choices for your podcast and other entertainment, especially now more than ever in the history of mankind <laughs> or humankind. Yeah. I'm your host, Christine Sloan Stoddard, and you can find out more about me and Quellville Press and Productions in the show notes. Tune in next time. <laughs>